Okay, we're beginning here on the top of Gimel Med Aleph, four lines down by the two dots. The Mishnah had said, for Rabbi Eliezer's opinion, until the end of the first watch. As we discussed in the Mishnah, Rabbi Eliezer's opinion is that when we say, when one goes to sleep, it's the time that the person goes to sleep. It's not when they're sleeping. And since the natural time for people to go to sleep is from Tzeta Kochavim until Ashmura Rishona, until the end of the first watch, that is the time period for Kriyachma. Now Gemara wants to understand, My Kasavar, Rabbi Eliezer, what does Rabbi Eliezer hold as regards to the watches of the night? If he thinks that the night is divided up into three watches, that means that on a 12-hour night, it's four hours, four hours, four hours for each of the watches. So why doesn't he just say that Kriyachma lasts for four hours? Why does he give the description of it being after the first watch? And if he believes, and this is a makhluk that we're going to see later on in the Gemara, that the night was divided up into four watches, just give the time period of three hours. Why give some sort of ambiguous term till the end of the first watch? Just say either three hours or four hours. This is what we described in the Mishnah, that he believes that the night is really divided up into three watches, and therefore the Adash Mura Rishona means until the end of the first watch, until four hours into the night. So why did he use this terminology instead of saying four hours? That there are Mishmarot up in the heavens, meaning that it's clear up in Shemayim when these divide up, when the Malachim switch over during these Mishmarot Halaylo. And down below, it's also obvious how the night divides up when it comes to the Mishmarot. Detanya, because we have a Baraita. The night is divided up into three watches. And on each of these watches, Hashem sits and roars like a lion, because the Pasuk says in Yirmiyahu, this is about Hashem saying that those nations that caused B'nai Yisrael the pain and destroyed Yerushalayim, that eventually Hashem will come and wreak havoc on them. It says, Hashem, mimarom yishag, Hashem from above roars, umimaon kocho itain kolol, and from his holy abode, he lets his voice be heard, sho'og yishag, he roars mightily, al navehu, on his dwelling place, and so as Rashi points out in the Pasuk, it says, Ishag Shog Ishag three times. So each of those roars corresponds to one of the Mishmarot Alayla. Visiman Ledavar. And the Siman down below by Aro on earth, where we have also these obvious signs of the same thing, is Rishona Chomor Noer. At the first watch, the donkey brays. Shnia Klavim Tzoakim. The second one, the dogs are barking. Shlishit. And the third one, Tinok Yonek, the young baby nurses, Mishteimo, from his mother's breast, Visha Misaperitim Bala. And a woman, now the literal translation would be that she speaks to her husband. As Rashi says, that's the time in the morning when people start to awaken. And therefore, when they are together, they speak. It also could be a euphemism of Misaperit, could be referring to marital relations, because that is the time that they are waking up, but they have marital relations at that time. Michael Choshev Rabbi Lezer. What is Rabbi Lezer pointing out? Over here he gives us these simanim as to when the Mishmarot are. Itchilat Mishmarot Kachashiv. He's telling us these are the simanim or signs of when the Mishmar begins. So when the donkey brays, that's the beginning of the first Mishmar. Then Tchilat Mishmar Rishona Siman Alamali. Why do you need a siman for the beginning of the first watch? The first watch begins at nightfall. Tzaita Kochavim. Then there's it in between one and two, between two and three, and then between three and the morning. 
So if you want to suggest that each of these simanim is telling us when the beginning of the mishmar is, why do you need a siman for the beginning of the first mishmar when a donkey brays? That's nightfall. Let's say to kochavim. You don't need any siman. Or to who? Because that's nightfall. You don't need any siman. Let's say to kochavim. If he's giving you the demarcation of when the mishmarot end, then sof when you come to the end of the third mishmar, which is the morning, why do you need a sign over there? Your momohu. That's daytime. That's daybreak. So why do you need a sign over there? You really only need a sign between the mishmar rishon and the mishmar sheni, and mishmar sheni, and mishmar shlishi. So you only really need two signs in the night because the first mishmar begins at nightfall and the last one ends at daybreak. So why is Rabbi Eliezer giving us three simani? El choshiv sof mishmara rishona, utchilat mishmara achrona, beemtsait emtsiata. He's actually giving us information that incorporates the division of the mishmarot, but something else. He's telling us the point of time between the first Mishmar and the second Mishmar. That's when the donkey brays. He's also telling us the point of time between the second Mishmar and the third Mishmar, when the child is nursing or the husband and wife are speaking. And then he gives us an additional piece of information, which is when's the middle of the night. The middle of the middle Mishmar, which would be Chatzot, midnight. And that would be the sign of the dogs barking. That all of them are demarcating the end of the Mishmar. But you asked before, the last Mishmar does not need a demarcation because that is the beginning of the day. What's the difference? In order that he can read Kriyachma at the proper time, someone who lives in a darkened house, a place where they can't tell that the light is come on. He doesn't know when Kriyachma is. So this will be an indication. That will give him an indication that that's the time to start Kriyachma, even though he is in a darkened place. He's uncertain as to when the day begins. As Tosafo points out, Rabbi Lezer is found later on in our Perek. And Rabbi Lezer over there says that Zman Kriyachma starts when you can tell the difference between Chela Dekarti, which is a later time. That's not a daybreak. That's a little later than the dawn. Tosafo says, well, that will be an indication when you should get up. You get up at dawn or daybreak in order that you'll be ready to say Kriyachma at the time that is laid out by Rabbi Lezer later on in the Perek. The night is divided up into three watches. And on every watch Hashem sits and roars like a lion. And he says, Woe is to the children, because of their sins I have destroyed my house, the Mikdash, and I burnt my sanctuary, and I've exiled my children amongst the nations. Tanyo, we have a bright Amr Yosef Hamachataiti Malik Biderech. One time I was traveling to Nasti the Khurvachat, Mikhurvot Yushalaim Litpalel. I entered into one of the ruins in Yushalaim in order to Davin. Mbalio Zakhurlitov, Vishamarli Alapetah, Eliao came and waited by the doorway for me. Achi Siamti Tvilati until I finished Davining. Achashi Siamti Tvilati Amali Shamalecha Rebi says to me, Shalom, Vamatilo, Shalom Alecha Rebi Umari. Why did you leave your path of travel and go into this ruin? I went in there to daven. You should have davened while you were traveling. I was afraid that other passerbys, other travelers would interrupt my davening. You should have davened a short tefillah. Rashi says that is Havinenu, which we'll get up to in the Gemara later on. 
Tosafot debates whether that's the case, and the end agrees to Rashi's position that the Tefillah Tzarei here refers to the Havinenu, which is a shortened form, a summary form of the Shemun Esrei. I learned three things from Elion Avi at that time. Number one, you shouldn't go into a ruin. Number two is that you should dive in while you're traveling and don't have to make a particular stop for it. And number three is that if you are going to dive in when you travel, you should dive in a shorter davening so as not to be interrupted or have any problems with the davening, be able to concentrate properly and not be interrupted. Vamarli, so now the conversation continues. Did you hear a voice? Did you hear something inside of this ruin? So Martilo Shemati Batkol or Kol Havara, either it's a heavenly voice or an echo. Sheminahemet Kiyona that was chirping or cooing like a dove. Omeret and it's saying, Oy the Banim, what was to the children? Shabanotem Hechrafti at Beiti, that because of their sins I have destroyed my house, Sarafti at Echali, and I have burnt my sanctuary, Viglitun the Benuumot, and they were put into Galut. Vamarli Chayecha Vachay Roshecha takes a shvua, lo shazu bilvado merit kach. It's not just at this time that Hashem said this. Ella, b'chol yom v'yom, shalosh pamim omerit kach. Every day, three times a day, Hashem says this. V'lo zubavad. Not only the three times a day does He say this, but there's also an additional time when He says this. Ella b'shash Shisrael nechnasin lebatei knesiot ulebatei midrashot. Bonim yehei shmo hagadol mivorach. Not only does Hashem say this, like we said before, at the shlosh mishmarot, the three times. But also every time that Bnei Yisrael go into the Bate Knesiot and Bate Midrashot to Davin, and they answer, Amen, Yehei, we have Shemei in the Gemara, but it's more likely, since we're talking about a Tanaic work, it should be Hei Shemo, because it should be in Hebrew, not in Aramaic. So it's Hei Shemo Agadol Mivorach, that his great name should be blessed. HaKadosh Baruch Menea Rosho Hashem shakes or nods his head. Vomer, Ashrei Lamelech Shemakalsino Tobe Beito Kach. Praise be the king who has his children saying or praising him in his house like this, but unfortunately, the father has sent the children away, and woes the children have been distanced from the table of their father. Basically, the Batei Knesiot and Batei Midrashot are what we call a Migdash Ma'at. They represent the Beit HaMikdash in a smaller form. And over here, B'nai are coming and B'mikadeh Shem Shemayim, inside of these Mikdashe Ma'at. And Hashem bemoans the fact that Bnei Israel are only doing that in their Mikdashe Ma'at and not in the Beit HaMikdash HaGadol in the house of Hashem because the Kiddush Hashem would be only so much greater if it was done in the Beit HaMikdash. And it's a sorry state that we are only left in the Mikdashe Ma'at and Hashem bemoans the fact that we aren't able to achieve the rebuilding of the Mikdash and the proper Kiddush Hashem that would come from such a restoration of the Mikdash. Now there is a very important Tosafot over here. Tosafot discusses the interpretation of the Machzor Vitri with regards to the words Amen Yehei Shmei Rabbah Mevorach. So the Shmei, the Machzor Vitri claims, is a conjugation of the words Shem Ka, the name of Hashem Yud K. And that is because by Amalek, in the battle with Amalek, Hashem says that his name will not be full until Amalek is wiped out. And over there he says, Kiad Al Kes Ka, the Kisei of Hashem will not be Shalem until the Shem Hashem is once again Shalem. So that is the Shem Ka. And the claim of the Machzavitri is that the interpretation of Yehoshmei Rabba, Rabba means instead of Gadol as it's interpreted here in the Gemara, but rather Yehoshem Ka, Rabba, made full and made great, 
means Yud Kei Vav Kei, it's come the full name of Hashem. And then, that's a period, and then it continues, Mivorach, the Olam al Maya, new sentence. So that's the way Maksovitchi reads Yehesh Meirab, he interprets it to be this idea of bringing the Shem Hashem back to its full standard, to Yud Kei Vav Kei, not just Yud Kei. And that is the Tfilo that we're saying when we say Yehesh Shem Ka Rabo, Rabo means great and Shalem, and then Mivorach, the Olam al but you see clearly from our Gemara that that's not the case. And that's what Tosfut says. He thinks that interpretation is wrong based on our Gemara. Because our Gemara says that the word Rabbah is modifying the Shem Hashem. It's not saying what's going to happen to the Shem Hashem. But it's rather the adjective describing the Shem Hashem. Which is, Yehei Shmo HaGadol. Hashem's great name should be Mivorach. Should be blessed. And it's all one sentence. It's not two different sentences. And therefore Tosfut rejects the explanation of the Machzur Vitri. Many of the Rishonim in quoting this still are notea mitzara Kabbalah to the interpretation of the Machzur Vitri. And therefore some of them suggest when we say the Shmei that there's a Mapik He in the Shmei and that is an indication of it being a conjugation of Shem Ka. And so therefore they think that both interpretations are rolled up in Yehei Shmei Rabba Mivorach Deolam Omeomaya. But it's clear from our Gemara that the simple interpretation is not like what the Maxovitri says. In addition, Tosavot quotes many that say that the reason the Kaddish is said in Aramaic is because the Gemara in other places mentions that the Malachim, the angels, don't understand Aramaic. And since this Kaddish is a tremendous praise to a Kaddish Baruch Hu, we did not want the Malachim to become jealous or interfere. Therefore, we say in Aramaic in a language that they don't understand. Tosavot again, once again, rejects this understanding because he says we have many beautiful tefillot about a Kaddish Baruch Hu that aren't written in Aramaic. So why is it written in Aramaic? So he bases it on the Gemara at the end of Sota that says that the two things that protect the world are the Yehesh Meirabo, the Kaddish, the Kiddush Hashem, and the Sidra the Kedusha, which is Uval Those two things are what sustain the world. They sustain the world because they both talk about Kiddush Hashem, the exalting of Hashem's name. And we know that today when we say Uval we translate all the Psukim that we bring in the beginning into Aramaic. And Tosfut says it's the same reason, because that was the spoken language. Therefore, there were some people in davening that didn't understand everything. And these two pieces, which were about fundamentals of the davening, they translated into Aramaic, so everybody could understand, and therefore it would be a Kiddush Hashem of the Rabbim, of everybody that was present. And that's why the Kaddish is written in Aramaic, because that was the colloquial, that was the spoken language. And therefore, to make it understandable to everybody, they translated into Aramaic the same way that we do it by Uvalitzion. Also, we see from this, again, that the destruction of the Mikdash and the Galut of Klal Yisrael is a Chilol Hashem. And therefore, when we go to be Mikadeh Shem Shamayim, that is, is somewhat of a rectification, but it also brings up the loss that has happened since the destruction of the Mikdash, because we aren't able to do or fully be Mikadeh Shem Shamayim in the proper way. There are three reasons why a person should not go into a ruins. One is Mipnei Chashad, because of suspicion, as Rashi points out, that it shouldn't be that you're having some sort of inappropriate rendezvous in that area. Mipnei Abampolet, because there is danger that it will collapse. Umipnei Amazikim, and because of the Mazikim, Shedim, other things that can damage you that would be found in there. Nagamar says Mipnei Chashad, why do you have to worry about Chashad? Why isn't it the fact that it's going to fall down a sufficient reason not to go into the ruin? So Gemara says, It's a newly formed ruin. It's a new ruin. And therefore the danger of it collapsing isn't so high. And so that reason would not prevent you from going in there. 
We'll say there's still the problem with Mazikin. So why do you need this issue of Chashad? Where it says, betray. When he goes in there with two people. Because with two people, Mazikin tend, tend not to get involved when a person is not alone. They're looking for someone who is vulnerable in order to attack them. When they're with more than one person, they tend to shy away. Where it says, he betray. Then Chashad Namileka. Then why is there any suspicion of a rendezvous if you have two people over here? We know that there's no longer any yichud when you have two men together. So Gemara says, betray upritze. Gemara in the end of Kedushim says that two men together are only not yichud when they're ksherim. But if they're pritzim, whether people that trustworthy or people that aren't necessarily morally upright, then there is still a problem of yichud. So this problem of chashad could exist even though you have two people there. And despite the fact that there's no chashash of collapsing and no chashash of mazikin being there. That's why the reason of chashad was entered over here. Now the Gemara is going to test the other reasons. Because of it collapsing. Why do you have to worry about it collapsing? You have the problem of the suspicion of a rendezvous. And you also have the problem of the mazikin being there. Where it says betray it's two people who enter together and they're ksherim. So you get, problem, get rid of the problem of Yehud, you also get rid of the problem of Mazikin. There's still a danger in that case to enter because of the fear of collapse. Because of the Mazikin that are there that could damage the person. Why aren't the other two reasons sufficient? So It's a new ruin, so the fear of collapse isn't really there. And there are two individuals that enter together and they're ksherim. So it says, you just said before, if you have two people there, the mazikim aren't apt to attack. In their place, we worry about them, as Tosfa points out. Either that means regilim, that is a place that we've in the past seen that they've attacked, or there have been problems here in the past, and since they're regilim, maybe they're not afraid of two people. Or, according to Rashi, but this is a place, ruins are a place where mazikim are found actively, and since they're found there on a regular basis, then you have to be chosheid, even you have to have worry about it even when you have two people going in there. Some people say, no, it's a case where it was one person entered, and it's a new ruin, the kaibadabra that's out in the fields. So the over there having a rendezvous is, would not be suspected because women aren't found out in the fields. No woman's alone out in the field. If it was in the city, that makes more sense. But out in the fields where there's nobody there, nobody's going to suspect that there's some sort of rendezvous going on. Women aren't generally found out in the fields. But the problem with mazikim is still there because this is an individual going alone into the churva. So for that reason, we need all three of these discrete reasons as to why not to enter a ruins because each one of them can stand alone when the other two are not there. So this is the machloket that the Gemara began with this question to Rabbi Lezer of how many mishmarot does he think that are in the night? Well, this is based on the machloket that we're about to state over here from the Tosefta, which is Tanur Banan, Arba Mishmarot Tavi Alayla Divi Rabbi. Rabbi believes the night was divided up into four watches. Rabbi Natan Omer Shalosh. Rabbi Natan says it's divided up into three watches. My time with the Rabbi Natan. How does Rabbi Natan know that it's three watches? Dichtiv says by Gidon, by Gidon when he's going to attack Midian, and he gets his group together, he breaks them up into three groups to work the attack, and it says that Vigvayevo Gidon Omea Ish Asherito, Gidon with the hundred men with him, came to Mikzea Machane. They came to the edge of the encampment of the Midianim, Rosh HaShmorot Atichona, at the beginning of the middle watch. Tana, Middle means there is something before and something after. If you do that, that means that there are three Mishmarot Alayla. That means that there are three Mishmarot overnight because you have a middle, implying that there's one before and one after. For Rebbe, my Tichona. What does Rebbe do with the word Tichona? Achat mina Tichona, Tichonot. One of the middle watches. I mean, there are two watches in the middle, because there's a beginning watch, an end watch, and two in the middle. So one of the middle watches. 
That's not what it says. It doesn't say the middle one of the middle ones. It says just the middle one. So my time with the Rabbi. What's the reason behind Rabbi that he thinks that there are four Mishmarot? It says about David Melech. At midnight, I get up to give praise to you and thanks to you over your just laws, over the Torah. Later on in Tehillim Kufyutet it says, Kidmu enai ashmurot. My eyes awakened. Now the literal translation could be before the watch, or the Gemara here is going to play on the word ashmurot, which is in plural, multiple ashmurot. So now, if David is saying that I got up at Chatzot Laila, I got up at midnight, then how could he be saying that I, I was starting at the beginning of an ashmurot, the beginning of a watch? Or, if he's saying it's at midnight, it says here that I got up before there were two Ashmurot remaining, two watches left. Well, if it gets at midnight and there are only three watches of the night, there aren't two watches remaining. Okay, so the only way for these both to be true and to reconcile between them is Abra Mishmurot that there were four watches at night. That where midnight is in the between the first two and the second two watches. That means there are two watches after this. It also means that he's at the beginning of a watch and that there's Mishmarot, there are multiple Watches after this. Rabbi Natan Savarla, Rabbi Yeshua. Rabbi Natan says, I hold like Rabbi Yeshua, the Tanan, Rabbi Yeshua Mer, Ad Shalosh Sha'ot, that until three hours in the morning, we're going to see this later on in the Mishnah and the Perak, that Kriyat Shmash Shacharit can be said until the third hour of the day, because that's when the kings arise. Sukain Derek Melachim Lamod, Bishloshot. That's when they get up. Shit, Delelia, Vitartid Yomama. If you put that together, David says that I got up before the other kings. Two Mishmarot, two Mishmarot, according to Rabbi Natan, each Mishmar is four hours, because he has three Mishmarot Alayla. That means I got up eight hours before the other kings. Well, if you work it out now, at midnight, if David is getting up at midnight, there are six hours remaining of the night. And then we said that the other kings get up at three hours, so David's up two hours before them. You put those together, you get eight hours. Eight hours is the equivalent of two Mishmarot, and that's what it means, David's saying, at midnight I'm up two Mishmarot worth of hours before the other kings, eight hours before the other kings. That's what the Gemara says here. Shit to Leila, Betarte de Yomama, six of night, two of the day. Avalu, Shte, Mishmarot. That's the equivalent of two Mishmarot, eight hours. Ravashi Amar, Mishmarot, Palganami, Mishmarot, Karilu. Ravashi says, I have a simpler solution. Even if it's at midnight and there are only three Mishmarot, it's still more than one Mishmar left. You can't, it's one and a half Mishmarot. You have to use the plural form, even though it's only one and a half. And that's what it means that there are Mishmarot left. Now this is going to happen many times in the Gemara and Brachot, which is that we have what's called a non-sequitur. Things that have nothing to do with the previous set of the Gemara. The only commonality between them is that the memra is said by the same individual. So we just had a memra before by Rabbi Zika, Amar Rabbi Ami, Amar Rabbi Shub and Levi. So now the Gemara brings another memra from them that not necessarily connected to the previous memra or not necessarily connected to our sugyo. And that is, One speaks in front of the mate, they should only speak about matters that relate to the mate. Amar Rabbi Abba Barakana, we have two ways to formulate or qualify this. The first one is, That's only true when you're talking in matters of Torah. But you're just talking in mundane conversation, there's no problem. As Rashi points out, the problem of talking in Torah in front of the mate is because that we saw in Nida and many other locations before that it's improper to do mitzvot or speak in Torah before the mate, as if you're making fun of them, because they're no longer capable of doing that. They can't learn Torah anymore. So when you learn and speak in Torah in front of them, it's as if you're making fun of them. With regards to Divrei Torah, that's true. Mundane speaking, that's not a big deal. And therefore you can say in front of them without any issue. 
Vigadarmin, some say Amar of Avraber Akana, Lo Amran Ella Afilu Bidivre Torah. That's also by Divre Torah. Ukoshke Milad Alma. Certainly mundane issues you can't speak in front of the mate. But even Divre Torah you can't speak in front of the mate, which relates to why can't you speak in front of the mate? If you think the problem is Loik Larosh of making fun of the mate, then fine, the limitation should only be relegated to Torah, because that's the only time where you're making fun of him that he can't do that anymore. On the other hand, if the problem here is Kavoda mate, that it's not proper kavod for the mate speaking about mundane matters or other issues in front of the mate, then certainly mundane matters are problematic. And the Gemara comes here to teach you here, not only mundane matters, but even divrei Torah are problematic to speak in front of the mate. And Tosfa brings from the riff that he paskins that it's only a problem in divrei Torah. And that problem is only when you're within four amot of the mate. And that's the way we pass in Aloha, that's only when you're in four amot of the mate is there this issue. When you're outside of the realm of the mate, which is for Amot, then it's no longer a problem of Loig Larosh, Cherif Maseyu. Mara says now, going back to our Sugi originally, David, David, David really got up at midnight? He already got up from the beginning of the night, because it says by David, Pashapshat of this Pasuk is that I got up before dawn and then I cried out. Now the word Neshef can be used in different places. We're going to see in a second that it can mean both dawn or dusk. So the Gemara here is interpreting this to mean dusk in this situation, and saying that I got up before dusk, before I got a nightfall, and I cried out to Hashem. Neshef or How do you know that this Neshef is talking about dusk? Because we have the Pasuk Mishlei, it says that Neshef Yom Bishon at the setting of the day, Bishon in the darkness and blackness of night. So you see that Neshef is close to the nightfall, meaning at dusk. This is what it means. I never passed by midnight while I was still sleeping. So over here, it doesn't mean kidamti baneshef. Doesn't mean necessarily that I got up before dusk. It means that I didn't allow the night pass by without arising. Meaning I rose at midnight. Until midnight, he used to doze off like a horse. From that point onward, he strengthened himself like a lion, and he began to learn. And until midnight, he used to learn. And from midnight onward, he used to be in song and praise of Hashem. How do you know that Neshef really means dusk or nightfall? Maybe it means dawn. Because it says in the Pasuk, came David, talking about David after the Amaleki attacked Siklag where his encampment was, and they plundered it and took off the people and the possessions. David chases them down and goes to attack Amalek. When he attacks Amalek, it says that David attacked them, from what seems to be in the Pasuk now, from dawn until nightfall, to the next day. So actually, the Maharatam actually throws a little bit of a monkey wrench in here, and we'll see that the Gemara reinterprets it in a second. My love mitzafra videlia. It sounds like the simple interpretation here means from morning until night. Lo, it says murta from night until night, and that makes more sense in the pasuk because it says veikem David Neshef, from dusk ad until night mimacharatam of the next day. But the Gemara says, well, that doesn't make sense because then yachid lichtov Neshef ad Neshef Just use the same terminology on both sides. If it's from the same point that night to the next point and the next night, you should use the same terminology. There are two types of Neshef. Neshef dawn, from the time when night is moving out and the day comes. Neshef or dusk, when the day is fading away and the night comes. 
So Neshef can be one of those two periods of time. It's the twilight time between day and night. So that can be both in the morning or in the evening. So Neshef can be interpreted in both ways. If you do that, you can go back to the puzzle by David and says, Kidamti ben Neshef. I got up before break of dawn in order to cry out to Hashem, which would correspond or correlate with Chatzot Laila Akum Lodotlach. Where it says, How did David know when midnight was? Moshe Rabbein himself did not know when midnight was. So how is David HaMelech able to know when midnight is? Because it says, When Moshe Rabbein is telling over that there's going to be Makat Bechorot, he says, Hashem will come, Like at midnight, my Kechatzot, what does it mean, like midnight? What Hashem said to him, like midnight? There's no doubts in front of a Shemayim. God knows exactly when midnight is. He doesn't have any doubts as to when midnight is. Hashem said to him, at midnight. But Moshe, when he repeated what Hashem had said, he says, like midnight. Clear that Moshe didn't know when midnight was, so he said, like midnight, because he didn't know exactly, and he didn't want any confusion to arise from that, so he said, like midnight. Then how did David know? If Moshe Rabbeinu didn't know, how did David know? When says, David simana avaleh, David had an indication from Hashem when midnight was. There was a liar hanging over the bed of David. When midnight came, the northern wind came, and it blew on it, and it played by itself, and that awoke David. And then he began to learn Torah until the break of dawn. Once dawn broke, the Chachmei Israel would come to speak to David to discuss the issues of the nation at that time. It's not enough parnasa for everybody in Klal Israel. Let them help each other out. Now whether that means let them have internally enough business between them that that should suffice, or does it mean that we should have a transference, mean that the rich should support the poor in this situation? Small amount of food does not take care of the lion. We have many people here, and we don't have sufficient, either internally sufficient business to support each other, or can't take from the rich and give it to the poor. There's just not enough. And the pit cannot be filled from the dirt that was removed from it. That's the way Rashi interprets it. Tosafot, on the other hand, does not like that interpretation because he says that the Mashal and Imdal are not correct. And therefore, Tosafot suggests is that the water or the spring of a pit or a ditch never fills it entirely. Alright, get the army ready. We'll have to go out and conquer. We'll have to get more space. We'll have to bring in more wealth. They first go and take advice from Achitofel. Then they take counsel with the Sanhedrin, and then they ask, for Hashem's guidance. How do we know that that's the case, or that's the order in which they did this? Because the Pasuk says, in Divrei Yamim, the Pasuk here is quoted incorrectly, which is, after Achitofel, the Pasuk in Divrei Yamim says, and the general of the army, which was Yoav. So the Gemara is indicating that that was the order. First you had Achitofel, who's the Yoat. Then you have, the Gemara is going to prove in a second, Yoda ben Benayahu, who was the Sanhedrin. And then Evyatar, the Kohen Gadol, which is the Urim Vitumim. And then Sartzavad, then the general goes out to war. Now the Gemara is going to prove each one of these. Achitofel is the Yoat. Achitofel is the advisor to the king. The Pasuk says, they're actually quoting a Pasuk when Achitofel already left from advising David. 
he joins the rebellion of Abshalom and he's advising the rebellion of Abshalom. And over there, the Navi, as a editorial comment, says about Achitofel, Whenever you ask counsel of Achitofel and he gave you advice, it was equivalent of speaking to God. He was always right, and therefore you needed to listen to him. And that's what in the end does in Abshalom, which is that David sends a plan in there in order to undermine the advice of Achitofel, and that's why eventually Abshalom loses. Benayahu ben Yoyada. Now, Benayahu ben Yoda, how do we know is this Sanhedrin? And Eviatar is the Kohen Gadol carrying the Umrim Bitumim. Here there's a Machloket in Rashi and Tosafot about the next line of the Gemara, what it's proving. Rashi says, That means before. Benayahu comes before the Kreti and the Pleiti. The Kreti and Pleiti being the Urim Bitumim. The Gemara explain that in one second. So Benayahu ben came before the Kreti and Pleiti. And Rashi says, Benayahu ben was the Avbeitin. The problem with that, and we'll explain in one second, is that this Pasuk says, Benayahu ben the Pasuk in Tiber Yomim, even though in the Gemara it's quoted as Benayahu ben Yoyada, was the opposite. It says Yoyada ben Benayahu. So then how do you know that they're the same person or they're doing the same thing? So because of that, Tosfot rejects this understanding of Rashi. We'll read the way Rashi says and we'll come back and read the way Tosfot reads it. Why are the Urim Vitumim called the Kreti Pleti? Kreti shikortim divrehem. They cut their words. Pleti shmaflim divrehem. That they are exact and wondrous in their speech. There's no extra letters. It's not the extra. It's exactly what's needed to be said. Durim to him gives the message that needs to be said. Then Vacharkach, the end of the Pasuga, starts about the Melch Yuav. The way Tosva reads it is actually that the Kratim Pleti is a proof to the fact that Benayo Ben was the Sanhedrin. That's because Ubnayo Ben Yodah, Allah Krativ, Allah Pleti. He was on the Kratim Pleti. Vilamini Krashmam Kratu Pleti. Why are they called Kratim Pleti? Tosva says, Why is the Sanhedrin called the Kratim Pleti? Shakortim Divrahim. They give psakalocha, and what they say is wonderful, is great. So that's defining the Sanhedrin. And even though the psukim are different, mistoma that Benayahu ben Yoda and Yoyada ben Benayahu, father and son, and one was Malemakom Aviv. So if we prove that one is from the Sanhedrin, then the other one is probably from the Sanhedrin as well. Evyatar, that he had the Urim Vitumim, that's obvious. Evyatar is the Kohen Gadol. Until Tzadok takes over as the Kohen Gadol, Evyatar is the Kohen Gadol. And when David had to ask the Urim Vitumim, of course he went to the Kohen Gadol, Evyatar. Because there were no other Kohanim. All the other Kohanim would be killed out in Novi Irakohanim when Shaul destroyed Novi Irakohanim. So now the Gemara continues. Amr of Yitzchak Baradov, Amri Lo, Amr of Yitzchak Braid Ravidi, Micro. What's the Pasuk that David was awoken at midnight by the playing of the lyre? Ura Kvudi, awaken my honor. Ura Anevil Vachinor, awaken the harp and the lyre. Aira Shachar, I awaken the morning. As Rashi points out, that Sharmilachim, other kings, Ashachim Oran. Morning awakes them. Instead, I am up before that, and I awake the morning. And that's my kavod. Not like the Pashtut, which is, awake my honor, but rather my honor is to be awoken by the music of the Nebel Chinor in order to be up before the morning begins, unlike the other Melachim. Okay, we'll stop over here.